Our reading today is a poem by Thomas John Carlyle titled, Our Jeopardy. It is good to use best china, treasured dishes, the most genuine goblets or the oldest lace tablecloth. There is a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an inmost mood or moment or a fragile cup of revelation. But not to touch, not to handle, not to employ the available artifacts of being a human being. That is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe, where nothing is enjoyed or broken or spoken or spilled or stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, poured over, laughed over, wept over, lost or found. How would it be if everything that you thought you knew was turned upside down, opposite from your point of view? It's a pretty amazing week here in Minnesota, isn't it? It is so good to be right here, right now. It is an amazing time, a wonderful time to be a part of this great state and a wonderful time to be a part of this faith community here as things turn on their head right, as those things we had hoped for and dreamed for begin to come true right here, right now. It's just a few weeks, right, just a few weeks now until those same-sex weddings, those legal marriages that have happened in other states and other countries will be recognized as legal here in Minnesota too, just a few weeks, and folks who have been waiting to get married will have that opportunity. What a huge gift. And I'll tell you, we have some celebrating to do, I think. We have some uh, opportunity here to take a deep breath, to share in joy with one another, to really take it all in. So I want to assure you that August is going to see a pretty big party here at First Universalist. We've been thinking about it. We've been thinking about it and planning for it and hoping for this day to come. So I just want to assure you that early August, we will be holding what I'm thinking of in my head as the big gay wedding or the big gay reception here at First Universalist, where we'll have a chance to host a party for all those folks whose marriages are suddenly legal on August 1st. And we are also looking forward to having all of our ministers on deck that day. Everybody here and available to offer those legal weddings to folks who have been waiting for this moment. It is going to be a big day here, and it is so good to be with all of you for this moment. 
This is a historic time. There has been a sea change among us, there is no doubt. It's an opportunity to bear witness to the fruit of decades of work and risk and hope and dedication. And I just have to say, who ever thought we would be here? Whoever thought we would be here back in September when we gathered in this very place for our standing on the side of love worship service to gear ourselves up for the fight against this marriage prohibition amendment in November, who ever thought we would be here just a few months later? It's been a whirlwind. It's been a roller coaster of events and emotions. I have had all kinds of feelings, and I know that many of you have too. It's gone all the way from shock and disbelief, which, which keeps coming back around again, to joy and exhilaration, which is there too, to a sense of sadness on a deep level as well, that not everybody got to see this day, not everybody gets to feel this, even still in the United States. So it has been a whirlwind. And it's a whirlwind, I think, because things have both gone so slowly and so quickly both at the same time. I have to remember, it was back in the 1950s that our Unitarian and Universalist ministers in secret performed a handful of commitment ceremonies for same-sex couples. I have to remember that it was 1970, 20 years later, when the Unitarian Universalist Association adopted its first statement of witness in favor of lesbian and gay and bisexual rights, when they had this resolution to work to support the end of discrimination against these folks. There was that same decade there in the 70s that saw the inclusion of homosexuality in a positive way in our sexuality education program for teens. And it was the 1980s that brought along the open affirmation of the practice of our ministers conducting ceremonies of commitment for same-sex couples. It was 1989 when this congregation performed in an open way its first ceremony of union for a same-sex couple. It was then in 1989 that we began our work to become one of the first welcoming congregations in our association. And I'll tell you, as an association, we've been on this journey working for full marriage equality for over 20 years. This has been a long time coming. It has been a long time. But I think something changed. I don't know if you felt it this fall and winter and spring, but I have felt something shift among us. It's something I feel like we need to pay attention to. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what happened, what moved us from a marriage prohibition amendment in the fall to marriage equality in the spring. What could possibly have happened? Because I'll tell you, whatever it is, we need to capture it and do it again and again and again. There's a lot of work to do. There's something that happened that shifted us, that shifted our hearts, that shifted this state and our legislature and moved us toward justice. So to get at one of the things I think moved us, I want to share a story with you. It's a story that maybe on the surface doesn't seem like it has anything to do with marriage equality and this fight that we've been in, but hang in there with me. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think there's a connection here. 
So this story I want to tell you, it comes from the Reverend Patrick O'Neill. He is a Unitarian Universalist minister, a colleague, somebody I consider a mentor from afar. And a couple of years ago, he shared this story with us at a gathering of colleagues, and I want to do my best to do it justice here. He said it was nearly 30 years ago, back when he was serving his first congregation out in the Yakima Valley of Washington State when this happened. It was on a particular day when he got a call from a local farm family telling them that their mother had died and asking if he would come out and do the burial service for her. They weren't church people themselves, weren't connected anywhere, but their neighbor used to be a Unitarian Universalist and, you know, suggested they give him a call. This woman was an elderly woman. She had been a widow for many years, and she and her husband were among the early farming families of the area. And in fact, he said, they had become quite wealthy over the years. The land that she and her husband had bought cheaply back in the 1920s and on which they had barely survived during the Great Depression, he said, turned into something of a gold mine in the 40s when they irrigated it and discovered that apple trees fared so well there in that volcanic soil. So there they were, Patrick says. It was 20 years or so after World War II, and Washington State apples became world-renowned. The Yakima and Wenatchee Valleys were at the center of this worldwide agribusiness. And so this family that had been nearly destitute, there she was when she died. This widow was able to leave a sizable fortune to her kids. Patrick says, when I arrived at the house that evening to meet with the family and plan the funeral service, the woman's grown daughter was sitting there in the living room surrounded by cartons and crates open in front of her and she was weeping quietly there. I just found these in the closet, she said. Two full sets of Wedgwood china from England that my mother apparently ordered from a catalog 30 years ago and then promptly stored away in the back of the closet. They've never been used, not even once. In fact, the daughter said they never even been taken out of the boxes they were ordered in, not even to look at them, not even to see if they were intact. I find that so incredibly sad, the daughter said. So sad that my mother was so afraid that she might chip or break even a single plate that she never once dared to even take them out of the box. You know, that's how she was. That's so typical of our mom, the daughter said. And Patrick goes on. He says, you know, I never knew the old woman personally, but I have always wondered about those beautiful, unused dishes. The daughter saw them as a symbol of her mother's overly cautious approach to life, and maybe she was right. But I wonder, he says, I wonder if that's really the whole story. Was it, he wondered, was it that the old woman really was so afraid of damaging these beautiful things that she wouldn't even put them out where she could enjoy looking at them? Or was it, he wondered, was it that these dishes maybe represented something else? Maybe for this farm woman who had survived years when she and her family had endured this near destitute poverty. Maybe these dishes were some sort of insurance policy for her against those years of drought and bad crops. Or maybe, he wondered, maybe these elegant place settings were one forgotten hope chest, one gift that was, in fact, to be offered to this daughter at some point. Or maybe, 
Maybe they were something else. Maybe one impulsive gesture of extravagance stored away there in the closet by this woman known for her modesty and restraint. We'll never know, of course, Patrick said. We'll never know, and neither will that daughter ever know for sure. But whatever story really accounts for those beautiful, unused dishes, don't you just find yourself wishing, he said, wishing that once in all those years, that woman had found it within herself to take that box out of the closet, to open it up, and maybe to even just look at the dishes. Or maybe she would have a simple cup of tea on her own, maybe with a dear friend, maybe with her daughter, maybe she would have one delicious dessert on those beautiful plates. Wouldn't you hope, he says, that she would have dared to risk it sometime, thrown caution to the wind just for the sheer joy of it all, just to allow herself to be bold and behold the beauty of this craft. It's not in judgment, he says, that he wonders these things. He wonders them because he thinks, like all of us, that perhaps this woman learned somewhere along the way to pack her heart up tightly, to keep it sheltered and padded and boxed up and put in the back of a closet somewhere. Because after all, the storms of life, the injustices of life, they batter us and they threaten to break us at different points. And so, so often, we take our hearts and we put them away. This story that Patrick shared, it sticks with me, this idea that Perhaps each of us has some part of ourselves, some deep truth, some longing that calls to us, that asks to be brought out, unwrapped, shared with the world. And I'll tell you, as I have thought about this journey we have been on towards marriage equality here in Minnesota, I think about those dishes in the closet and I think of them because I think that part of what happened here, what's been happening all over, is that folks are taking their hearts out of the boxes and sharing them with each other. I think that so many of us have been willing over years to tell our stories, to dare to risk, to share what it is really like in our lives, what the challenges are, what the loves are. We have been willing to share some of that. And as we've done it, other folks' hearts have come out of the closet as well. In the spirit of deep listening that we have been learning more and more to do, our hearts are coming out of those boxes. We are trusting and hearing and bearing witness to the vulnerability that is there in each of us. And I'll tell you, I noticed this because it was just a few years ago that I was in New York State and we had the same fight for marriage equality and I worked on it there for years. And so coming here, my eyes were open and I noticed something. It's something I'm still figuring out how to talk about exactly, but it was different here. Some of the things I noticed were that when I showed up for phone banking this fall and I looked around at the table of all of us on our computers with our headsets on, I looked around and I realized I'm the only, as far as I know, the only openly queer person at this table of six making these phone calls. 
when I went out canvassing neighborhoods, I walked with a straight man, a lawyer who had taken the day off from work to be there, to be out as a part of this journey. When I went to the Capitol this last week when I was there on Thursday and on Monday and on Tuesday, and I looked out and I saw all of you and so many others, it wasn't just same-sex couples that were there. It wasn't just lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people and their immediate families. It was all of us. And I'll tell you, when I got tired and when I stepped back at different points on the short journey I was on with you all here in Minnesota, there were dozens of people stepping forward to take my place. It did not depend on me. It did not depend on only lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people to pass this. It was all of us doing the work. And that is different. That is different than anything I have experienced yet in my lifetime, and it is worth paying attention to. We have to pay attention to it because we did it and we've practiced now. We got here and friends, there is so much more work to do too. I want us to take this in, to take this deep breath, to know the joy of this celebration and of this sea change. And I want us to keep our hearts open. I want us to keep telling our stories, our real life stories of our truths and of our pains and of our loves and of what matters to us. And I want us to listen, to hear the stories that are different from ours, to let our hearts crack open, to keep taking them out of the box and out of the closet, to let our hearts break open to all of the injustice and oppression that is out there, that we might do this again and again and again. During the fall, when we were getting fired up for the marriage prohibition amendment work, when we were doing that, I was down at the Capitol with many of you. We were getting fired up, and one of the folks that was there to speak was the Reverend MacArthur Flournoy from the Human Rights Campaign, and he stood up in front of us, and he said something that I hope I never forget. He stood there, and he said to us, you know, justice is never justice if it is just us. Justice is never justice if it is just us. And I have taken that and this journey to mean two things. Justice is never justice if it is just for us, just for one constrained group of people. But also, justice can never be the full justice that it can be unless we do it together, unless all of us are in it, not just one group at a time. Justice is not justice if it is just us. These are some of our learnings along the way, some of the things that we have taken in and that we are ready, I think, to practice again. So I have a wondering for you. Here it is. Ta-da! <laughs> Just so you know, at my previous church, I was known as the dignified minister, so it's not really that big of a deal, but look, this, this is what I am wondering. What are we gonna get our shirts out for next? What is our next fight? Where will we bring justice and equality next in this state and in this world? How will we put to use the incredible learning and opportunity we have had together?
How will we do this? So friends, this is our journey. This is our task to keep letting our hearts out of the box, to have those conversations that matter, to listen and allow ourselves to be changed that we might change this world. Let us do this work together. Amen.